Well, Matt, I don't mind admitting you're one of my favourite players, if not my favourite player of all time, so I could just um, sort of sit here and gaze at you for thanks. half an hour without <laughs> even asking any questions, but that wouldn't make for very riveting viewing. Um, I suppose we'll start with Southampton doing so well at the moment. You must be absolutely thrilled. Oh, um, in dreamland at the minute. <laughs> uh, to be able to sit on that panel on a Saturday afternoon knowing that my team are, t- are on top of all their three is absolutely <laughs> brilliant. Um, and I never thought I'd ever be in that position, so I'm making the most of it while it lasts. To what do you attribute their success? I think the appointment of Ronald Koeman was obviously a massive factor um, to get such a, uh, a huge name with such experience in management in I think was the biggest key and then for Ronald and, and the team behind him to actually bring in the players to replace the ones that had obviously been sold for quite a lot of money and, and you'd probably say the spine of our team uh, was pretty much ripped out uh, and they've replaced brilliantly and the lads that have, that have come in have all done very well and uh, I think the the, the basis of, of the success so far this season has, has definitely been the, the defence. Um, I've never known a Southampton team to look so solid. I mean, when I played, it was like, <laughs> we knew we were going to concede a goal. We just had to try and score a few more than the other team. Uh, so to see this um, is absolutely brilliant. Right. And, I mean, almost exactly a year ago, there was hysteria in the back pages of the papers. Yeah, I wonder who created meltdown. that. Um, <laughs> Were, were you concerned? No, I was delighted, uh, to be honest with you. Um, uh, I didn't have uh, any concerns. Um, I, obviously, I, I didn't think I was, we were going to be in this position uh, yeah. a year later. Um, but certainly, I didn't see the, the whole hysteria of, of the chairman leaving and, and everybody panicking because, yes, he was in charge when we, when we had two promotions. Um, uh, and, and rightly takes uh, a little bit of the credit for that. But we had the biggest budget in, in League One, biggest budget in the Championship. Um, so we should have been uh, kind of there or thereabouts. So he did very well spending somebody else's money. Um, so it, it wasn't um, uh, any kind of panic on my behalf uh, when he left. Yeah, and the, at the start of the season, I was at Ronald Koeman's, I think it was his first his press conference before the first game of the season. And... Pretty much most of the journalists in the room were predicting that Southampton would get relegated. And he, he actually offered to uh, have a, a bet with one of them, a 100 quid bet, which was turned Good down. Yeah, excellent. Uh, but, um, I, I mean, for them to be still in the Champions League places at this stage, it's, it's just weird. It doesn't <laughs> look right. It does look a bit odd. Uh, and every Southampton fan that, that I know are just pinching themselves and, and just thinking, well, surely it can't continue. But, you know, earlier on in the season when it was going pretty well uh, and everybody said, well, hang on a minute, let's wait and see where they are at Christmas and let's you know, yeah. see what they're made of at that point because then we'd have played everybody once. Uh, and we we drew with Chelsea on uh, the 28th of December and that, that meant we played everybody and we were still in the top four. So um, they have a realistic chance of staying in that top four. They have then went on to beat Arsenal, beat Manchester United. Um, so from that point of view, um, we're in a very good position and people are talking seriously about Southampton possibly staying there. It's going to be tough because obviously the, the teams that are below us have, have far bigger squads than we do uh, to, to cope with the uh, any injuries and suspensions that might pile in the, the second half of the season but 
so far we've we've coped pretty well with missing a few key players in some big games. You know, we had none of our first choice fullbacks when we drew with Chelsea. Morgan Schleiden was missing when we played against Arsenal. Um, so all these things um, that have been sent to test us, um, they've passed most of them with flying colours, apart from the little blip at the beginning of December. Yeah, well, I mean, they, they had what was it four consecutive tough games, and they they lost them. Well, all. yeah, it was three, and three, and then sorry. and then we played Burnley away and uh, missed a penalty at, at nil nil, and then Burnley went up the other end and, and got the winning goal. So um, that game could have gone either way. The only game that I've really kind of watched this season and, and where where we've been outclassed really was against Manchester City uh, at home, and they beat us three nil, and I think it was one nil when they went down to ten men, and still beat us three nil. So um, apart from that game. Um, I don't think there's, there's been anything too much to fear. Chelsea probably dominated us a little bit second half of the game down at St Mary's. Um, but we've we've competed brilliantly this season. Yeah. And living in the area, what, is, is there a noticeable feel-good factor? Or um, Yeah, I, I, it is a feel-good factor, but it's weird because, because people almost don't want to believe it. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It, it's like so unexpected that everyone's going... Okay, what do we do now? <laughs> well, you know, we're in third place. Do we do we start expecting to be in the Champions League? Do we talk about okay, maybe possibly getting in the Europa League? Would you want that? Um, but I love the way that the manager actually comes out. He's been incredibly positive about it all, and said, "No, we can we can get a Champions League spot." He's yeah. no, he's seen nothing this season that has said we can't do it. Well, I mean, there's teams the teams that would normally be challenging. Obviously, the fact that they're Struggling, mm. Liverpool, Everton are struggling yeah. badly. Sure, seems like that. So yeah, they, they do have a good chance. Yeah, I mean, you'd expect the likes of Manchester United, Arsenal, Liverpool, Spurs to to all be above us, uh, and they've all had at various times of the season um, a, a few difficulties. Having said that, I still look at the table now and think actually they're not that far behind us. So <laughs> I don't want to get carried away. Um, but we keep winning, keep putting on performances, and uh, and the manager keeps signing players that do the business. It sounds to me like you you think they will do it, but you're afraid to say. It. <laughs> Does that, that come across? Is, that's that's how I'm. <laughs> that's the vibe I'm getting. I could be wrong. Well, I don't expect them to do it, but from what I've seen this season, there's no reason why they can't do it. Yeah. That's kind of the, the the position that I take at the moment. Um, soccer Saturday. Uh, which you work on every week mm-hmm. looks like great fun is it it's probably more fun than that to be honest with you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah um I, I consider myself to be incredibly lucky to have kind of fallen into that job really um it's i think quite a, a coveted uh, job amongst uh, ex-professional footballers i'd imagine yeah. um so yeah I, every day every day i go into work and i, I call it work uh, um I just pinch myself because I think I'm so lucky. It's just that it's just having one of the best jobs in the world. There's not many people that get to see the all the goals fly in from from every game at three o'clock on a Saturday afternoon. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I sit in the chair next to Jeff and pretty much do that and uh, and have a laugh with my mates, having a chat about football. It's a perfect job. Uh, can you talk me through the day? What when do you get there? How do you start? Okay. Um, well, I'll get picked up at uh, at nine o'clock uh, on a Saturday morning. Um, drive to the studios in Arsleworth. Uh we get there we have our little chat in the in the office beforehand um, we put on our little accumulator that we that we do every week 
uh, where we all pick uh, one team each to win on the Saturday. Not an obvious team, but kind of a 50-50 game. And, uh, and we, we win about once in a blue moon. Um, uh, and that's kind, of, um, that's kind of it. We do our little predictions, our Super 6 stuff and uh, all that kind of stuff. Um, we go down to make-up at about half past 11. Um, yeah. Get a bit of... Sp- Get a bit of colour to the faces if we haven't been slap. on all day. A bit of slap. Uh, and then rock on into the studio. We're in there for about 20 to 12. Just sit there, wait for the cameras to start rolling. Check our statistics or we get a little fact sheet of, uh, of all the stats from the games that are coming up. So you get a little bit of homework on them. Um, and 12 o'clock comes and, and away Jeff goes and we just kind of react. There's no rehearsals or anything. Jeff's the only one who's, who's really kind of knows what direction the show is going to go in right. between 12 and 3 o'clock yeah. um, and so he's, he's obviously done his prep where he knows the questions that he's going to ask us but he's so good at his job if it, if it kind of goes off in a different direction he just ad-libs and, and goes with it and um, we just we just have a great laugh for six hours every Saturday afternoon it's brilliant Yeah, How do you divvy up the games? The producer chooses the games right. Yeah, we have no say whatsoever and believe me I've tried <laughs> <laughs> When I see some of the games that I've been given, I, uh, there's an email that goes back sometimes saying, any chance of a swap around with someone? <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Um, but yeah, he doesn't, he doesn't have any of it. He chooses it, and that's, uh, that's the end of it. Well, I think I've seen you on occasion. Like You spend more time. I <laughs> might, on occasion. Yeah. If Merce is watching Southampton, I, I yeah. might be looking over his shoulder a little bit. And he needs all the help he can get. Okay. <laughs> Merce discuss. Is it? <laughs> good guy funny yeah I think um, sat next to him uh, every six hours on a Saturday is quite possibly the, the most entertaining bit because you never know <laughs> what pronunciation is going to come out of his mouth this week uh, it, is, it is priceless some of the stuff he comes out with and uh, now it is um, it, it is very interesting to yeah. sit next to that for six hours and Jeff Stelling is just well unbelievable he's a genius, <laughs> Jeff, he's a genius. I mean, uh, presumably, there's someone babbling in his ear constantly. Oh, several people. Yeah, several people. He's got he's got producer. He's got the director. Um, so I've he's been got, in the control room. He's got a statistician, but don't tell everyone that bit. Um, because it, to be fair, he knows yeah. most of the stuff himself. He's he's brilliant. Um, but yeah, he does. He has a, a, obviously a lot of stuff coming into the earpiece, um, and he deals with it brilliantly. And he interacts with us brilliantly. Um, and for six hours, he's just an absolute genius. Uh, and at the end of it, he's absolutely shattered, <laughs> which is bizarre because he just sat there for six hours. But mentally, it must be so draining for him. Um, I, I do pity the person who who has to. Um, hope it's not for a long time, but who has to try and follow in his footsteps <laughs> of doing that job because uh, he's kind of made it his own, and it's going to be a tough one to follow. Yeah. There'd be a lot of viewers who would never have seen you or Merce or mm. Tomo or Charlie Nicholas play. Yeah. Is it a concern for you that you might get sort of traded in for, oh, for younger models? Yeah, it's going to happen someday. Um, you know, I myself um, got traded into the team uh, when Rodney Marsh left. Right. So yeah. I know that at some point it's going to happen. But yeah, thankfully there's YouTube and uh and the internet to, to show these people that actually yeah. in our day we could play a little bit yeah. and we know what we're talking about. Um, so, but you just enjoy every moment as it's there because you never know when it's gone. Uh, speaking of YouTube, your, your YouTube greatest hits is just a thing of 
beauty. Uh, <laughs> some of the goals you've got have been just out of this world. Um, I, I, I'm going to ask, I suspect I know the answer. What, your own favourite is, is Blackburn? Yeah, my own favourite is the Blackburn one. Yeah. So you, um, you picked up the from, ball. From drifted, a technical point of view, yeah, a little dribble past a couple of Blackburn players and then smash one in the top corner from 35 yards. But it wasn't, it wasn't one of them where you just kind of put your head down and smack through it and, yeah. and don't know where it's going. It was actually a, a it was actually a shot that I've been practicing in training quite a bit, which surprises people when I tell them that because they didn't think I went training. Um, but I did. And, and we, we'll it, get to that. It was a shot that I'd, I had practiced and uh, and it came off brilliantly. It was it was exactly where I was trying to aim the ball. That that was what for me, that's what made it special. And the fact that my mate was in goal for Blackburn that day. It's Tim Flowers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That made it a bit more special. Why we we lost the game, which which is the only disappointing part about it. Yeah. We still lost three two that day. Um, and you, then you have I think my favourite of yours uh, I think it was was a free kick against no you when you yeah, flicked up against, against Wimbledon. Wimbledon yeah it was and, rolled back to me and I flicked it up yeah, over the wall yeah yeah that was a that was an interesting one because um, that was the idea of our first team coach at the time Lou Chatterley uh, and Lou had um, been watching some European football during the midweek leading up to that game and on the Friday when we were just about to finish training he said, oh, he said, I saw this free kick in the week. He said, have a go at this. And he showed me what the, what the guy did. And I thought, eh, I think I could do that. So I had, a, I had a few goes. It must have had a dozen goes. I mean, six of them went in the trees behind the goal. <laughs> um, but a couple of them went in and, and I kind of got a bit used to it. And when we were given the free kick on, on the Saturday, I, it was quite central and I quite fancied just curling it straight in. And Jim McJilton come up to the ball and he went, why don't we try the free kick we did yesterday? And I went, yeah, go on then. <laughs> so off we went. And that was it. That's how it came about. Smashed it in the top corner. And uh, the, the amazing thing is, I never tried it again. Oh, really? After it. I never attempted it again for the rest of my career. I just forgot about it. <laughs> and I, did, I don't know why, because it was, it was such a good free kick. Yeah. But I suppose, looking back now, just having one go at it and scoring once, it was quite nice to have a 100% record from that <laughs> kind of free kick. And then I think another one people cite is, so to say, your top three maybe is, is uh, Newcastle. Newcastle goal. But you, you think you what you shinned it in or something? You, it you wasn't. No, I didn't. Cleanly. Yeah, I didn't shin it in. Uh, it, it it was meant to go in a, a little bit firmer. I kind of went to side foot the ball in, and instead of it hitting me flush on my side foot, it kind of caught the bottom of my boot a little bit. So it kind of just then bobbled past Mike Cooper. Who, to be fair, didn't actually move, so it didn't matter. Yeah too much how it went in but from uh, from my point of view I would have preferred it to have been a bit of a crisper finish as a perfectionist <laughs> <laughs> your England career mm. uh, short yeah I see you've the caps over there in a, a cabinet uh, Moldova is missing I believe is it the Moldova cap uh, no it's not missing it's on the side there's two names on one cap ah right so I played in two World Cup qualifiers leading up to the 98 World Cup so they give you one cap and they put the names of the teams that you qualified in for that tournament I see and I also noticed the Republic of Ireland cap you played in the famous game when I did England yeah. fans began uh, the demolition process on, on long overdue demolition process on Lansdowne Road <laughs> What, what do you remember about that night? Uh, I remember being quite scared. <laughs> Were you? Yeah, yeah, I was. Uh, I'd, I'd never really seen anything like that uh, in a football ground in my life. So when kind of the game gets 
uh, abandon the referee calls you off the pitch you do start thinking oh my god there's a lot of people out there you know if this properly kicks off what's stopping them coming in to the changing room oh really yeah well you, you just didn't know it was that kind of um, fear if you like that you really didn't know how you were going to get out of the place if it was still kicking off outside so yeah it was a, a pretty scary night famously you scored a hat-trick for England B in the run-up to 98 World Cup didn't make the squad at 30 uh, which must have been fairly gutting and then Gaza mm was famously dropped from the squad of 30, which meant... And it was Glenn Hoddle who was manager at the time, a creative midfielder and someone you, I believe yeah. you really admired as a player. Yeah, Glenn was my hero as a kid. You know, yeah. I was a Spurs fan growing up. And, uh, yeah, that was that was massive disappointment to me in my career. After scoring the hat-trick, um, I, didn't, I didn't assume that I would, I'd done enough to get into the squad uh, because I'd obviously not played that many times for England. Uh, there were people with, with much more experience than me um, that were also vying for those places. But after getting that hat-trick, I thought I'd done enough to be named in that squad of 30, which went out to La Manga. Um, and it, when, it, when the squad was announced, I actually found out through teletext, actually, back <laughs> in those days. teletext. Yeah. Um, and, um, yeah, I was absolutely gutted, um, to say the least. And looking back... I think it was probably a bigger blow to me than than I ever realised at the time because I never quite realised, I think at that point I realised I'd never play for England again. Right. And and I think that took a little edge away from my game at Southampton after that. I never really got anywhere near the form uh, that I'd showed before that World Cup um, again for Southampton until I retired. Is that because it was a blow to the ego or a blow to the confidence no, a, a, or? a blow to my ambition because I always I always played uh, my football for Southampton hoping that if I played well I can play for England yeah. and that was kind of that's what kind of kept, keeps you going at club level and then when I realised that that's been taken away from me you, I think I almost looked back and thought well it doesn't matter how well I'm going to play I'm never going to get there again uh, and then I started picking up a few injuries and stuff, and it all kind of went downhill from there. Yeah. Um, ambition is not a word you're readily associated with in some quarters. Some people think... Unless it's got lack of it. <laughs> <laughs> do, do you think that's fair? I don't think it's particularly fair. Yeah. Uh, I can, uh, listen, I can understand why people uh, will level it at me. Those people that do level it at me don't know me. Yeah. Um, so I can understand why they think that way uh, my answer has always been as a kid I had two ambitions in my life one was to be a professional footballer and the other one was to play for England and at the age of 25 I think I was when I made my debut 24 I, I did that and I got my lifetime's ambitions by my mid-twenties now the people that level that accusation at me uh, it'd be interesting to ask them what they wanted to be when they were a kid and whether by the age of 24 or 25 they'd done it. Yeah. And then tell me I've got a lack of ambition because from where I came from uh, in the Channel Islands, nobody from Guernsey uh, has ever played for England before uh, at the full international level. Uh, so I was the first Guernsey man to ever do that. Um, and that for me is is quite an achievement. Um, and so from being a, a little kid in Guernsey growing up, um, I, I, I did those two things and, and that was kind of always my answer to people who said you had no ambition I didn't have an ambition to win 
the first division title, the Premier League. That wasn't an ambition of mine. I wanted to be a professional footballer. I wanted to enjoy my football. Um, and I loved the life that went with it, which meant that I didn't have to get up and go to an office every day. I mean, I can go on and put my football boots on and, and train. Um, and most of the time, enjoy training. Pre-season was a bit different. Didn't enjoy that at all. Um, but during the season, when, when the training was a bit lighter and games were coming thick and fast, I loved every second of it. Um, and and that's, that was my ambition. So if, say, you could hop in a DeLorean and go back in time 30 years, what, would you have any advice for the, the 16-year-old or 17-year-old you? Do you know, I don't think I'd do anything differently, to be honest with you. I, I really don't. Um, I've got no regrets sat here with you today. Um, I had a fabulous time. Uh, I, I've got... Uh, a wonderful reception every time I go down to Southampton. The fans uh, were always brilliant with me. Um, I have a lovely lifestyle. I, I also am comfortable with the the level of fame, if you like, uh, that went with being a professional footballer. Um, and I'm not sure how comfortable I would have been with it had I gone and played for uh, a much bigger club or gone and played for abroad in, in you know one of the the big teams abroad um, so to be honest with you my life's been been pretty happy and, and I've got no complaints do, do you ever wish you'd, you'd left Southampton if only to not have to relentlessly feel the question about not leaving <laughs> Southampton for, the, for your entire life you, it doesn't I'm, bother me no no it doesn't bother me at all man. Yeah. how close did you come to joining Tottenham very close yeah I did come close um, yeah in the terms have been agreed on a contract and uh uh, and it was incredibly close, and at, at the last second, I, I, I changed my mind. Um, Why? Well, there were there were various reasons, really. Uh, family reasons was one. Uh, I think there were um, also issues where I'd. That was kind. Of, that season was kind of my first full season in the first division uh, as a twenty-one-year-old, and and in the end, I didn't think it was it was right to go and do that move. Um, and as I said, I, I have no regrets about making that decision, and. No regrets about all the other teams that, that kind of came in for me. I never, get, I never got as close to join anybody else. But to this day, I have no regrets whatsoever. Presumably you could have made a lot more money. I, I, apparently, you signed Southampton YTS. You were on 26 quid a week? Yep. Right? Went uh, up to 35 quid in the second year, though. Yes, it was £4 win bonus, £2 draw bonus. Draw. Yep. Uh, and then you went up to 100 that was my pro. first professional contract, yeah, £100 a week. 110 in your second year, and then 250 quid a week when you became a regular. And then yeah. at the, towards the end of your career, you were on three and a half grand a week. Yeah. So, I mean, there's going to be people listening to this going, what? How do you know? It's peanuts. <laughs> do, you, do, you, do you wish perhaps you'd been born 20 years later? So, you know. Do you know what? I, I actually don't, <laughs> right. strangely enough. Um, and I think the reason for that is because I'm, I'm not sure that in, in today's game um, that I would have enjoyed it as much. Uh, I think that the profile of it has gone um, sky high, it's gone through the roof. And, and you almost, as a professional footballer now, I, I spoke to, to many of the lads about this, but they must be constantly looking over their shoulder because camera phones, Twitter, Facebook, people, you, you, you can barely have a life or do one little thing wrong 
without it being blown a hundred times out of proportion uh, and stuck all over Twitter and Facebook and all sorts of stuff. So I'm actually pretty glad that I played in the era that I did where you could have a bit of a life outside of football as well and you could be you know, a little bit mischievous uh, off the field here and there and, and people didn't get to hear about it yeah. unless you do an autobiography and tell everyone about <laughs> it. <laughs> um, in your playing days, I think it's a, a fallacy to suggest you were lazy or didn't train properly. You said you enjoyed training. Your diet perhaps wasn't no. all it might have been. Uh, McDonald's on the way in and... <laughs> that, that was a bit of a myth that, that was to see I, I never ever once had a McDonald's on the day of a game Neil Ruddock put that in his autobiography and it was a blatant lie oh well I, I didn't the day before mean, a game yeah I, I meant I every didn't. other day rather than <laughs> oh right okay yeah, yeah. Um, I, I did on occasions uh, not I, I actually wasn't a, a massive uh, burger eater at McDonald's mm. to be honest my, my favourite meal was the sausage and egg McMuffin to be honest so I used to have one or two of those on the way to training on, on occasions not every day. How can you run around with two of those? Sitting it was in difficult, and actually, you say that the mornings that I did try and do that, I, I actually found out that after about twenty minutes of, of kind of warming up and stuff, I did find I was getting a bit lightheaded, <laughs> and, and palpitations were coming. In, and I thought, yeah, it's probably not the best thing to eat for breakfast. So after a while, I did stop. Right. Were, were you a big drinker, or did no. you smoke or anything? No, never smoked, and still to this day, I've never smoked a cigarette. Um, to this day, I've never drunk a pint of lager. Uh, what? I've no. You've never drank a I've pint. I've never of lager. drunk a pint of lager in my life, and I've never drunk a bottle of wine, red or white. So I, I'm not a, a big drinker. What, what, uh, what's your poison then? I, I, <laughs> I knew that question was coming. I drink Malibu and Coke. Oh my God! Yeah, so uh, oh, I'm having palpitations. <laughs> Malibu and Coke. I like it. I like a glass of champagne every now and then. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, if I, if I have a drink, it's normally Malibu. So you and say Neil Shipperly, Francis Benali, Ian Dowie are out. Franny's never drunk. Oh really? And you order Malibu Coke? You... Oh, I got a lot of stick for it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that's where you you have to be a. As a professional footballer, you have to acquire a thick skin. Yeah. And uh, mine was probably thicker than most <laughs> due, to the, due to the fact that I drank Malibu and Coke and, and received a fair bit of criticism from various media outlets and uh, my own manager on occasion. <laughs> but hey. Who was your favourite manager at Southampton? Alan Ball? Alan Ball. Yeah. Yeah, those 18 months that he was my manager were the best 18 months of my career. He built the team around me uh, instead of trying to fit me into the team. He had as much belief in my ability as I had in my own. And I don't think that was possible sometimes. <laughs> um, but he did. And um, for those 18 months, uh, that was just the best football I played over a, a long period of time. Okay. And I think you've said in the past when Ian Brandfoot was in charge that wasn't a good time. That was probably the polar opposite. Right. Um, we, yeah. Uh, Ian wasn't um, a manager that was kind of looking to play the ball on the floor. He wasn't a, a very progressive manager. It was very much a get the ball in the channels, we'll chase the ball down, we'll win free kicks and throw-ins around the opposition box and try and take it from there. And so um, it didn't kind of suit the style of play that I really wanted to do. Um, so on occasions he, he left me out and, um, and on occasions... 
I had to go back and play in the reserves and prove myself all over again. And is that not poor recruitment, really? Because surely if you're the standout player at this football club, why would they hire a manager that isn't going to play to your strengths? Yeah, I thought it was a poor appointment, you're right. Um, but... Um, Nobody kind of looked at the at the board in those days uh, mm-hmm. who were making those decisions. It was just that's your manager, get on with it. Um, do you think football fans take the game too seriously these days, or is it just that now they they've always taken it seriously, but they have more outlets for their fury and righteous <laughs> anger? I don't think you can label them all the same. Uh, first of all, yeah, well, I think that's there, fair there is a there is a minority who will take it incredibly seriously uh, and incredibly personally. Um, and uh, I, I, I do get on the receiving end of uh, some some vile abuse sometimes on Twitter just through the fact that you might say one bad word about a team on the television or uh, you know when you're just being given an honest appraisal and all of a sudden this bile spews out <laughs> that's when the block button is a very yeah, good thing to yeah. have I, I find and, and uh, hey at the end of the day it is their team and they are passionate about it and that's what makes football football and that's what gives you the great atmosphere when you go into the stadiums so it's a difficult balance in act you want people to be passionate about it but you have to know where to draw the line Yeah, I suppose it would be worse if they, they didn't care at all but. yeah Speaking of, of atmospheres and Premier League grounds, I've, with a couple of notable exceptions, that's maybe Stoke, Southampton, it, this is just from my experience, and Crystal Palace, a lot of the grounds now are just very quiet and it's almost like being at a play or being at You know, <laughs> sometimes I, I was at a, an Arsenal Sunderland game last year, I'm a Sunderland fan, and you know, it was game over after about twenty minutes. I think they were three nil up, mm. but it was just, just so quiet. You could you could hear a pin drop. Yeah, um, I think the the old stadiums that that had the real character and, the, and where the the stands were right on top of the pitch, I think they obviously created a, an incredible atmosphere. And I think that's at some grounds that's kind of what you miss. The crowd were almost too far away uh, from the from the playing area to be able to generate a, a fantastic atmosphere. Um, and that's a shame, really. And I think that's all down to... I think that was UEFA, wasn't it? Or FIFA, you couldn't play in the Champions League unless you had this space between the touchline and the first set of supporters. Um, and I think there was there was some ruling about that. Uh, and I think that takes away from the atmosphere a little bit, definitely. I mean, the Dale was the daddy of all those those grounds. It certainly what, was. What was it like playing there? It was brilliant. Uh, and the great thing was, we knew that the opposition were coming down didn't really like playing there. I mean, nobody, you know, all the players that I spoke to after have all said the same thing, hated going down and playing that. Everyone right on top of you, pitch wasn't very big. Um, and it was it was a, a fantastic atmosphere down there and we, we made the most of it. Did, did you miss it after you left or...? You scored the last goal. I did score the last goal there, uh, and that was the, uh, a special moment that will kind of live with me forever. Because I think that was my only goal that season in the, in the <laughs> league. Um, I'd spent most of that season injured, uh, and uh, to score the, the last ever goal there was was brilliant. But I, I then the following so I only had one season at, 
at St Mary's and I was injured most of that as well. Um, so I didn't really play there and get to get to compare and contrast too much as a player. And your final goal at the Dell was a winner against Arsenal. It I was. Think. And was it Chris Marsden almost ruined it, ruined the fairy tale by scoring another one? He did, yeah. We were attacking again, and uh, I think it was Alex Manninger in the Arsenal goal made a brilliant save, tipped it over the bar um, just after I'd scored that. And uh, I actually very nearly went up to the goalkeeper and started shaking his hand. <laughs> so, Thanks very much for doing that. I thought that's probably not the right thing to do. <laughs> in all your time at Southampton, who, who were the best players you played with? Um, uh, well, early on, um, Jimmy Case was in the side. Uh, Jimmy was brilliant. Um, he really was. He looked after us, you know, the youngsters that were coming through, myself, Rodney, Wallace, uh, Alan Shearer. Um, he was a, a, a real minder in the team, so kind of people tried bullying us. He'd, he'd be able to sort out the opposition and just let them know that he was around. Don't take, it, don't take advantage of the kids. Um, and he was brilliant at that. Uh, an underrated footballer as well. Um, I think obviously Alan Shearer also came through just after me uh, at Southampton, so um, he went on to to be the most prolific Premier League goal scorer there's ever been or ever likely to be. Um, and then we had one guy who I had a very special relationship with in the 94-95 um, season, and we got him on loan from Barcelona for a season. That was a guy called Ronnie Eklund. Mm. He was a Danish midfielder and he was had a brilliant football brain. And, and for that season, that was when Alan Ball was in charge. That was the the best twelve months I think of of my career playing alongside him in that side because he was absolutely superb. And as far as the worst is concerned, that that would probably be Ali Dyer, who you were famously <laughs> subbed off. For, uh, anyone didn't who does, to, you didn't have to throw that bit I'm in. Sorry, you just yeah. left that bit out. For, for I any, was injured, by the way. I wasn't playing badly. Oh, okay, right. <laughs> I'll take your word for that. Yeah, um, yeah, he did. He came on and came back off again. Yeah. He, he was the the, the guy allegedly brought in. Allegedly, the cousin of George Way, but apparently he was just utterly hopeless. Like yeah, him. he wasn't. He wasn't particularly good, um, uh, and it was a bit bizarre because we'd seen him in training the day before, um, and I can remember thinking that you know, I thought he'd won like a competition or something to come and train with us. And, uh, and then he turned up on the Saturday in the changing room. I was like, what's he doing here again? <laughs> he got named on the bench and then he came on a sub for me. And I thought, and then after a while, Graham soon has realised, I think, that you know, he's probably not up to this and he had to substitute him again. Um, your status in Southampton, I presume you're very highly regarded, you, you know, from the career. And I'm, our taxi driver told us you, you do a lot of good charity work around the place which I'm sure you don't want to talk about absolutely uh, not <laughs> um, c- could you conceivably go out in Southampton and, and not have to buy a, a drink ever again or get just get free meals free taxi rides <laughs> uh, I, I've had the occasional free meal and the occasional free taxi ride but it's not yeah. every time I go out and, and the occasional free drink but yeah it's not uh, it, it's not a given that, uh, that that's going to happen and are you able to go about your business in, in peace? I am, yeah. And? Uh, and I think that's one of the things. I've never really kind of um, hidden away, if you like, uh, all the time that I was playing. I'd still go out and do the normal stuff. I'd go down to the shops and you know, get me shopping in down at Sainsbury's and any other good supermarkets that are available. <laughs> um, and, and I just live, uh, I've always lived a pretty normal life and never hidden myself away. So people are kind of just used to me being about. So I, I can go about my business pretty easily down here. You seem very just sort of laid back and well adjusted for 
you know, if, thinking of other mercurial England talents, uh, Gaza, you know, who has his problems, and Merce had his issues as well. To what do you owe your sort of? I think I I, I have to owe that to to my mum and dad, uh, to where I grew up. I think it was a very different uh, way of life I had for the first 16 years of my life back in Guernsey. Um, it is a very laid-back place. Um, and I kind of also... I didn't get spotted by Southampton until I think I was 15, so it was quite late in terms of uh, youth development. Um, so I was able to kind of just lead a pretty sheltered life up until that point. Um, and I, I don't know, I think those those things have all kind of helped me to keep my feet on the ground. Um, I still have, I have an incredibly close relationship with my, my family back in Guernsey. You know, I go back there um, still uh, a couple of three times a month. Um, we had a, a lovely dinner just before Christmas with all my brothers and uh, and the, the various partners and kids and all sorts. It was 23 of us in my brother's dining room for a Christmas dinner. So, um, And that's pretty special and they've always been uh, a massive part of my life. Is it true, actually, when you were younger, Gerard Houllier, in his capacity as France manager, made inquiries about... France assistant manager. He right. was assistant to Michel Platini at the time, and he, he, he ran my dad um, to try and get my dad to persuade me to um, play for France. Could you have? Were you eligible? I wasn't eligible, no, right. but he didn't know that at that point. Okay. Yeah. Um, he just saw the name and thought, he must have some French in him recently with that name. Um, but no, we've been Channel Islands for... Uh, as many generations back as, as my grandparents can remember. Um, what, what would you do? Uh, describe your, your perfect a perfect day in the life of Matt Letizia. From from the moment you get up, what would you do? Oh, um, from the moment I get up, so we get uh, up by our, our beautiful little Ava, who's five years of age at about seven o'clock every morning. So is that your daughter or that's, the dog that's my daughter? No, that, yeah, the dog's Bella. She's fine. Oh, okay. She doesn't wake us up. Right. Uh, so yeah, Ava's our, our little five-year-old daughter. She'll she'll wake us up at seven. Perfect day. Would she? She's just started reading really well. So it's a it's a lovely time for her to come in and read in the mornings. And so that's that's a great way to start the day. Um, then it would probably be obviously a trip down to McDonald's for a sausage name and muffin probably. Um, yeah, eighteen holes at a suitable golf course. And then uh, come back, spend the rest of the day with, with the wife, take her out for a nice meal to one of our favourite restaurants, and then uh, watch a bit of footy on the telly. Um, have you ever fancied trying your hand at management yourself? Not really. Not really. It's far too warm in that studio on that afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> and the food, oh my God, it just keeps coming. It's brilliant. Really? Yeah. Oh, we just eat all afternoon when the adverts are on. Oh, it's lovely. We sit there, we talk about football, we watch football, and we get food bought to us all afternoon. Why would I want to go into management? <laughs> Seriously.